Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. One of the biggest mysteries in all of A Song of Ice and Fire that was completely glossed over by HBO's adaptation is The Long Night. I mean, look, I know The Long Night is shrouded in mystery and all that, and I know the television version of a book can't always be faithful to the deep lore. Nerd rage, nerd rage. But it really does seem like it should have been, you know, longer than a typical night, right? Indeed, Old Nan tells us that compared to the original Long Night, what we saw on the show was some weak-ass bullshit. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Fears for the winter, my little lord, when the snows fall a hundred feet deep and the ice wind comes howling out of the north. Fears for the long night, when the sun hides its face for years at a time, and little children are born and live and die all in darkness, while the dire wolves grow gaunt and hungry, and the white walkers move through the woods. Old Nan goes on to say that the long night was when a winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man, and also when there came a night that lasted a generation. Plus, there's some stuff about kings shivering and dying in their castles, mothers smothering their babies instead of watching through frozen tears as they slowly starve, and of course, the invasion of the others. That's the crux of the matter, really. Tormund Giants Bane tells us that the White Walkers are essentially like icy vampires in that they won't come out by day, not when that old sun's shining. That means that the others actually need a long night to invade Westeros. They need that dratted old sun to be hidden for an extended period of time so they can carry out their full vision of hope and change for the Seven Kingdoms. And that means that we're looking for a trigger mechanism something to really actually prevent the sun's light from reaching the surface of the planet. This is true for both the original Long Night and the new Long Night, which is surely coming. So if we can puzzle out the cause of the first Long Night, then we'll have ourselves a big, giant, red beacon of a clue about how A Song of Ice and Fire will end. That's just what this video will attempt to do, reveal the cause of the first Long Night and thereby predict a major event upcoming in the winds of winter. So hey there, friends, it's David Lightbringer, and I am very pleased to present to you my most important theory. And 
I have to say I'm pretty fired up about it. Before we go any further, please make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Make sure you set the notification bell to all notifications. And if you'd be so kind, hit the like button one time for old Nan. She's working hard out there after all. So, as I asked in my first produced video ever, what is the trigger mechanism for the long night? How does one hide the sun? On the show, there were just sort of storm clouds that kind of followed the White Walkers around, and that was that. In the book universe, however, we know that the long night of the ancient past was experienced all across the known world, right? From Westeros to the lands of the Rhoyne to Yi Ti and Shy by the Shadow. And although there are accounts of demons of some kind invading the lands of the very far east during the Long Night, which implies that the others or something similar may have been present there too, it does seem that the Long Night was a global darkness experienced by everyone, as opposed to a local phenomenon like clouds that only hover over the others. Now, perhaps Martin is actually imagining a global snowstorm issuing out from the heart of winter in all directions and covering half the planet. That would be pretty cool to be honest, though something would still need to trigger it, of course. However, there's another prime suspect that our author is calling our attention to, and that's the Red Comet. Comet and meteor impacts can and have plunged our own very real planet into periods of global darkness, and that's without magic involved. Any sort of significant comet or meteor impact event in A Song of Ice and Fire would almost certainly be a magical event. Because the magic in A Song of Ice and Fire seems very strongly tied to the elements and the forces of nature, such as ice and fire, water, trees, human blood, obsidian, and so on. And also because we've already heard that meteorites can be magical if the tales about the dawn meteorite are true. Ergo, a magical comet or meteor impact could work pretty well as a fantasy world trigger for a magically enhanced global winter event. And there's not really much else that could. You see, if you want a global winter that hides the sun from the Earth's surface, you kind of only have three choices for a rational explanation. A comet or meteor impact, a supermassive volcanic event, or a massive nuclear explosion or series of explosions. The nuclear winter can be ruled out entirely because A Song of Ice and Fire is a fantasy story through and through with basically no hint whatsoever of any sort of modern human technology. The volcanic explanation is theoretically possible, but unlikely, because we've already seen an ungodly huge volcanic chain explosion only 400 years ago in the Doom of Valyria, and no long night or global darkness is recorded as having taken place. The Red Comet, however, well, that's featured prominently early on in the story. And, more importantly, the Azor High Reborn prophecy already links the appearance of the Red Comet to the fall of a new long night. Melisandre tells us all about it in A Storm of Swords. It is written in prophecy as well. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor High shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. So as I said, the bleeding star, the red comet, and the gathering darkness of a new long night, well, they're prophesied to arrive together. Perhaps that's because the red comet will kick off the new long night. Huh? Maybe, maybe. Now, it's true that the red comet has come and gone without causing any long nights. But what if it, or another like it, were to return by the end of the winds of winter to do the job? And spoiler alert, I'm predicting that it will. Check out this other highly suggestive quote from Melisandre about the rebirth of Azor High and the new long night. 
In ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. And he who clasps it shall be Azor High come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. This time, instead of the long night arriving with one bleeding star, Melisandre speaks of the cold breath of darkness falling on the world when the stars bleed, as in plural bleeding stars. Although this line is mostly overlooked as general apocalyptic language, such as we find in the biblical book of Revelation, it's actually a fairly unambiguous quote. When the stars bleed can really only refer to multiple falling stars in the sky, meaning a meteor shower of some kind. A meteor shower that will fall heavy on the world and plunge it into the darkness of the long night, perhaps. Now as for the original long night of ancient legend, well, we find signs of falling space debris there as well. In the Far East, we find tales of the moon cracking open and a story about a fellow named the Bloodstone Emperor, who was said to have both caused the long night and to have worshipped a black stone that fell from the sky around that time. I just mentioned the very unique meteor sword, Dawn, supposedly made when the first Dane followed the track of a falling star and there found a stone of magical powers. And of course, it seems likely that Dawn will turn out to be the original Lightbringer, or the last hero's magical sword of Dragonsteel, or probably both. If so, that's another magical meteorite associated with a long night. In other words, it seems that Martin wants us to look to the skies when we think about long nights, past or future, which is perhaps why he said this one time in 2013. Two big books, 1,500 manuscript pages each. That's 3,000 pages. I think I have a good shot. And you know, if I really get pressed, I've already established that red comet. I can just have it hit Westeros and wipe out all life. Imagine the private joke that George might be having here if, indeed, he does plan on bringing the Red Comet back around not to end all life, but to trigger a new long night, which is a threat to all life. No, I'm certainly not basing my theory on this, but if I'm at all close to the mark, then George is indeed having a grand chuckle with himself here, even as the audience laughs at the joke that he's kind of using for cover, if you will. Oh, the Red Comet coming back, that's so silly. <laughs> Yeah. Now, let me tell you, this is far from the only way that he's establishing, quote-unquote, the Red Comet as a potential trigger of the apocalypse. All right, so the cause of the long night, which, by the way, is probably also the cause of the wonky, irregular seasons that this planet experiences, is definitely a mystery that the reader is intended to try to solve. And if you're a fantasy author trying to create a mystery about an ancient global cataclysm, the primary way that you'd give the reader clues about it would be through the background folklore of the main story. Because myths and legends are how our ancient ancestors recorded world-changing events such as global floods or global winters. You see, friends, before modern science came along and sort of changed the way that mankind views the world, it was, of course, quite common to understand the titanic forces of nature in mythical terms. So lightning bolts and tempests, well, they're the work of angry storm gods and sea gods, right? The earth and the moon were, and still are, seen as great mothers who create and move the cycles of life. The sun was seen as a great fiery king or queen. And by the way, that is the origin of the golden pointed crowns worn by 
kings and queens all throughout world history. Flying comets and meteors, well, they were seen as fire-breathing dragons that bring death and devastation, or perhaps portend momentous change, and so on. The global floods triggered by the melting of the ice sheets some 9,000 to 15,000 years ago are the very real events behind the nearly universal global flood myth that we find all throughout the world, with every different culture having created their own mythical language and storytelling to describe the experience. Once we thought these flood myths were merely fables, but later research shows that they were simply very old memories of very real ancient global cataclysms. My friends, I am perhaps overly pleased to tell you that George R. R. Martin has brilliantly mimicked this sort of historical myth-making phenomena by hiding all the fingerprints of the Long Night Cataclysm inside the old myths and legends found all throughout the Song of Ice and Fire universe. It seems clear to me that he wants the reader to try to reconstruct the broad strokes of these ancient events by examining his scattered fables. So that's what we're here to do, starting with a collection of myths that all involve falling space debris, magic swords, and the Long Night. Now, strangely enough, the Westerosi legends about the Long Night actually don't have anything to say about what caused it. But as I mentioned a moment ago, Sam does tell John that, quote, I found one account of the Long Night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly, they could not stand against it. John and Sam go on to wonder if the term dragon steel might not refer to dragon-forged valerian steel, which would make a lot of sense, right? Except that Valeria did not seem to exist at the time of the Long Night. That's kind of a problem. The sword Dawn supposedly did, however, and Dawn is basically just a white Valerian steel sword. The Danes of Starfall are one of the most ancient houses in the Seven Kingdoms, though their fame largely rests on their ancestral sword called Dawn and the men who wielded it. Its origins are lost to legend, but it seems likely that the Danes have carried it for thousands of years. Those who have had the honor of examining it say it looks like no Valyrian steel they know, being pale as milk glass, but in all other respects, it seems to share the properties of Valyrian blades, being incredibly strong and sharp. Now, it's pretty hard to say when and how Dawn was forged. It's definitely an anachronistic item. It doesn't really belong in the Age of Heroes with the first men who basically only have bronze and a little bit of crude iron. But it's possible that dragons were involved, right? If, if Dawn really is similar to or the same as Valyrian steel. And that, of course, would make it a dragon steel sword, right? Now, more importantly, a sword made from a meteorite could be described as dragon steel on the basis that, of course, falling meteors and flying comets are quite often mythicized as fire-breathing dragons, such as in the Augsburg Book of Miracles, produced between 1545 and 1552 in Germany, from which I grabbed the cover artwork and much other artwork for this video. Any sword made from the iron ore of such a meteor dragon would be a kind of celestial dragon steel, let's call it. The luminous sword Dawn, described as being alive with light, certainly does make sense as a magical sword capable of defeating the death and darkness of the others. What with the titles Dawn and Sword of the Morning attached to it, right? It's not exactly subtle. Those phrases also dovetail with the vows of the Night's Watch, which speak of the Watchman as a sword in the darkness and the light that brings the dawn. So, alas, Tiro, leading the Night's Watch, with Dawn in hand to battle the others in the War for the Dawn? 
Kind of makes sense, right? Especially given the ancient tradition of dawn only being wielded by exceptional heroes. I mean, perhaps this custom began with the last hero, right? So like I was saying, there's a couple different ways that dawn might work out to be the last hero's dragonsteel sword. And if that's the case, then we have a Westerosi myth about a falling star that is linked to the long night. I don't think we have to go too far into ancient aliens territory to pose the question, could it be possible that the dawn meteor impact was actually the thing that triggered the long night? I mean, if the same meteor impact event that caused the long night also turns out to have yielded up a magic stone that helped end the long night, I do think it would be poetic and a little bit ironic, but more importantly, consistent with a lot of the themes of the story. Even the meteorites get redemption arcs in A Song of Ice and Fire. And you get a redemption arc, and you get a redemption arc, and you get a redemption arc. This sort of the problem is also the solution scenario would also mirror the rising and falling symbolism of Venus, which is where all these Lightbringer, Dawn, Sword of the Morning ideas are drawn from, by the way. You see the word Lucifer is originally a Latin word, which refers to Venus when it's in its morning star position. And it's also translated as the phrases son of the morning, Lightbringer, and Dawnbringer. This is because, from our perspective on Earth, Venus gradually shifts between appearing to rise into the sky just before the sun rises, when it's known as the morning star, and appearing to fall down to the horizon right after the sun sets, when it's known as the even star. Ergo, if the same star that fell from space and triggered the fall of the long night later rose in the hands of the sword of the morning to help bring the light of dawn and end the long night, We'd have to say that it's a very clever way to bring the Venus mythology to life in story form. And again, both the legendary sword names in question, Lightbringer and Dawn the Sword of the Morning, are taken from phrases that refer to Venus. Now, all the way over on the other side of the world, in the ancient, dusty scrolls of places like Yi Ti and Shy by the Shadow, we find accounts of the long night which place the guilt in the lap of a dude who already had a meteorite in his lap. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture, and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. Many scholars count the Bloodstone Emperor as the first high priest of the sinister Church of Starry Wisdom, which persists to this day in many port cities throughout the known world. In the annals of the Further East, it was the Blood Betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the Age of Darkness called the Long Night. Despairing of the evil that had been unleashed on Earth, the Maiden Maid of Light turned her back upon the world, and the Lion of Night came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of men. Alright, well this Long Night legend does give us a proposed cause, how nice. Although I must say it's unclear how the murder of the Blood Royal and the usurpation of the throne of this great empire of the dawn achieves the blotting out of the sun, which the Easterners think of as the Maiden Maid of Light. And, by the way, quick digression, the Maiden Maid of Light appears to be an idea that George adapted from Japanese Shintoism, where the sun goddess is known as Amaterasu Umakami, which means heaven-illuminating great deity, or sometimes as Oharume, which means great woman of the sun. It's very similar to Maiden Maid of Light, right? 
For example, just as the maiden maid of light hides her face from the world during the long night, a materasu causes a prolonged darkness when she hides in a cave after being dishonored at a feast by her younger brother, Susano, who is then in turn expelled from heaven for his crime, only to eventually kill the monstrous serpent, Yamata no Orochi, from whose carcass he makes a sword translated as Sword of the Gathering Clouds of Heaven, which he then presents to Amaterasu as a gift to redeem himself to her. So, a long night caused by the dishonoring of the sun goddess and a dragon sword that helps heal the rift? Pretty cool how George ropes in different myths about magical darknesses into his own long night mythology, right? I mean, sure, the long night is obviously based on Ragnarok quite a bit, but, you know, George went hunting and he found some more myths about long nights and sort of pulled them into the mix here. The main point I want to make here is that this story about the fall of the Great Empire of the Dawn once again suggests an impact event occurring right around the time of the Long Night. The Bloodstone Emperor, offender of the sun and instigator of the Long Night, worships an evil black meteorite. And we can assume it's an evil space rock because, well, the Bloodstone Emperor's Church of Starry Wisdom and much else around this neck of the woods is borrowed or inspired directly by the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, who is quite fond of writing about evil black rocks and evil magic meteorites. And then when you consider that the Bloodstone Emperor is already very strongly associated with every kind of dark magic and black magic, it seems likely that any rock that he worshipped would pretty much have to be both evil and magical anyway. We can also observe that the Bloodstone Emperor appears to have been named after his fallen space rock, since comets and meteors are known as bleeding stars in A Song of Ice and Fire. A bleeding star, which is actually a stone, could be a bloody stone in a manner of speaking, right? A bloodstone. And we also know that meteorite stones, such as the one that Dawn was made from, are referred to in the story as hearts of fallen stars. So if it's a bleeding star in the sky, its cold, dead meteorite heart could certainly be called a bloodstone on the ground. To put it another way, the title Bloodstone Emperor is basically the same as Bleeding Star Emperor, or perhaps Starheart Emperor, both of which are good nicknames. So friends, just when the Bloodstone Emperor's reign of terror couldn't possibly be going any better, the legends tell us that some asshole named Azor High came along with Lightbringer to lead the forces of men, whereupon the darkness was put to rout, and light and love returned once more to the world. So sad. Well, uh, sorry, I, sad for the Bloodstone Emperor. Good for everyone else. Now, this does obviously sound a lot like the story of the last hero leading the Night's Watch against the others with Dragonsteel during the Long Night, especially if Dragonsteel is a reference to the Sword Dawn. And guess what? It's actually very possible that these myths are talking about the same story, despite the incredible distance that separates their lands of origin. The presence of Azor High at the end of the Bloodstone Emperor, Great Empire of the Dawn story is a big clue that these events relate to Westeros somehow, since it's fairly obvious that Azor High has something to do with Westeros, right? Otherwise, why would the author be filling the pages of the story with people looking for Azor High Reborn to fight the others in Westeros. Why else have Danny and probably soon Jon Snow check all the boxes of the Azor High Reborn prophecy if the original Azor High didn't have something to do with Westeros? The legend of Azor High is an Eastern myth, but it's one that has always seemed relevant to Westeros. And the link is the Long Night, magic swords, 
meteorites, and of course, the blood of the dragon. That's right, the connections between the Westerosi legends of Dawn and the Last Hero and the Far Eastern legends of the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor Ahai aren't just a matter of being similar stories with similar elements. As any of you who have watched my Great Empire of the Dawn series will know, thank you everyone, what we're talking about here is an ancient Dragonlord civilization which existed in Ashai before the Long Night and before Valyria and which came to Westeros before and during the Long Night. As dramatic as that may sound at first, we've actually been hearing that there might be dragons in the Shadowlands beyond Ashai ever since the first book. And in the World of Ice and Fire, we learned that Septon Barth says that the ancient Ashai might have taught the Valerians how to control and bond with dragons. And I more or less think that that is exactly right. This lost Ashai dragonlord civilization was, I believe, the same one the ancient scrolls of Yi Ti name as the Great Empire of the Dawn. And we can surmise that they were dragonlords because they appear to have built infused stone, just like the Valerians after them. So far as we know, fused black stone, which is also called dragonstone, can only be created with sorcery and dragonfire. So it's a pretty conclusive case. The five forts are supposedly made of slab walls of fused stone hundreds of feet high. And there are five of them. The Great Empire of the Dawn are also pretty much the only suspect for the building of the fused stone fortress beneath the high tower at Old Town, which is one of the big pieces of proof that they came to Westeros in ancient day, long before Valyria ever arose. None other than Daenerys Targaryen sees a vision of what appear to be the gemstone-associated emperors of this lost Dragonlord Empire, the Great Empire of the Dawn, in her Wake the Dragon dream in A Game of Thrones, and they make quite the entrance. Ghosts lined the hallway, dressed in the faded raiment of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. They had hair of silver and hair of gold and hair of platinum white, and their eyes were opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade. First of all, hat tip to my friend Durin Durndon, who first made this great find. Now, all of these kingly ghosts, they have dragonlord hair, right? Silver, gold, and platinum white. And the one with amethyst eyes would essentially be a perfect Valerian or Targaryen. The other eye colors, however, were never seen among the Valerians. And the four gemstones named here turn out to exactly match four of the eight gemstone emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Opal, Amethyst, Tourmaline, and Jade. Not only do these kingly ghosts kind of look like dragon lords, and not only do they want Danny to wake the dragon, well, look, they're holding swords of pale fire. That means that they're being implied not only as dragonlords, but as highly skilled mages and sorcerers, and quite possibly very advanced bladesmiths. Obviously, flaming swords and dragonlords make us think of Azor High. What is this, like his family or something? Well, yeah, basically that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, this is Azor High's family. The prophecy of Azor High being reborn to wake dragons from stone does, after all, make a lot more sense when you realize that the original Azor High came from the lands of the Great Empire of the Dawn, which was a Dragonlord civilization. That means it's overwhelmingly likely that the first Azor High was a Dragonlord, just as Azor High reborn candidates Danny and John are or will be Dragonlords. Similarly, it makes sense to think about Azor High wielding a sword of magical fire, 
when we think of these gemstone emperors as his ancestors and kinsmen. Clearly they possessed the knowledge of flaming sword sorcery. So now, thinking about the sword Dawn once more, a pale, luminous meteorite sword, which could be Lightbringer, a sword completely anachronistic in first-man-dominated Westeros. Could these swords of pale fire in the hands of the emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn indicate a link to the sword Dawn? Can Dawn light up with pale fire and... Were these the people who made it? I mean, if we're looking for people who can make a substance similar to Valyrian steel before the existence of Valyria, the Great Empire of the Dawn certainly fits the bill as an advanced, pre-long night, dragonlord civilization. After all, if the original Azor High did indeed come to Westeros, as seems likely, and if Dawn is Lightbringer, then that basically just means that Azor Ahai left his sword in Westeros. The story that emerges then is that Azor Ahai's Lightbringer came from the Great Empire of the Dawn all the way to Westeros to win the War for the Dawn in the hands of the last hero, and was then probably renamed Dawn the Sword of the Morning. It was also remembered in the Annals of the Night's Watch as a sword of dragonsteel, which it certainly was. I think you'll agree that this forms the backbone of a somewhat coherent narrative about the past, and pretty neatly unites these very similar Eastern and Western legends about the Long Night. Another clue about Dawn and Lightbringer being the same sword or very similar related swords can be found in the other names of Azor Ahai. That's right, there are other names for Azor Ahai. How long the darkness endured, no man can say, but all agree that it was only when a great warrior, known variously as Hercoon the Hero, Azor Ahai, Yin Tar, Nefarion, and Eldrick's Shadow Chaser, arose to give courage to the race of men and lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword Lightbringer that the darkness was put to rout, and light and love returned once more to the world. The names Eldric Shadow Chaser and Hercoon the Hero are very clear nods to Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnibone book series, which Martin has credited as being a large influence on his own writing. Elric of Melnibone is a dragon-riding hero, or perhaps anti-hero, with a black, blood-drinking, magically flaming dragon sword called Stormbringer. Stop me when any of this sounds familiar. Elric is also an emaciated, nihilistic, white-haired albino sorcerer who's kept alive by psychedelic drugs and magic. And yeah, this should remind you of Bloodraven. And of course, it turns out that Bloodraven and Elric both draw influence from the Norse god Odin, as I documented in Odin Origins Bloodraven, which you should definitely watch. Elric of Melnibone also has a sinister cousin, Irkun, who contests against Elric with a matching black dragon sword called Mornblade. That's right, Sword of the Morning. Mornblade, you're catching on. And this is why another of Azor High's names is Hercoon the Hero. Then, to tie all this back to House Dane and Westeros, George left a couple of Eldric name variants in the family tree of House Dane. There's Edric Dane, who appears in the main story as the squire of Beric, don't call me Azor High Dondarian, and also Ulric Dane, a sword of the morning from the time of Daemon Blackfire. Eldric Shadow Chaser, in other words, could be the Westerosi name for Azor Ahai and or the last hero, if those are the same people or related people. And the last hero is, of course, remembered as having chased the white shadows away. Shadow Chaser. Chasing the white shadows. Yeah, pretty good, right? Eldric Shadow Chaser may have also been the first Dane. 
I'll also point out that the precedent of two matching dragon swords, Stormbringer and Mournblade, suggests that Dawn could have some long-lost twin out there, perhaps the first black dragonsteel sword. I've often speculated about a black sword made from the Bloodstone Emperor's black meteorite to sort of rival Dawn being made from a pale meteorite stone. So keep your eyes on, say, Longclaw, the swords made from Ned's Ice, Widow's Wail, and Oathkeeper, and especially the Targaryen ancestral sword Blackfire, if and when it appears in the story, which I expect it to. Elric's Stormbringer, you see, is a black sword graven with red runes, and when it lights on fire, it lights up with black fire laced with red. This is undoubtedly where George got the notion to have his black dragons, like Beleriand and Drogon, breathe black fire shot through with red. And that, of course, is where the sword Blackfire gets its name, from the Blackfire of the Black Dragons. Another of Martin's major influences, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, pops its head up to get a word in here about the Danes and star swords. Isn't that nice? The Danes seem to be, in many ways, based on the Dúnedain, who fled the fall of Númenor, which, by the way, is very equivalent to the Great Empire of the Dawn as a fallen Atlantis-type civilization. The Dúnedain fled Númenor and founded a new house in Middle-earth, just as I'm proposing House Dane would have fled the Great Empire of the Dawn to come to Westeros around the time of the Long Night. The Dúnedain are filled with references to Venus mythology, just like the Danes are, and they've got a couple of magic swords laying around too. Hey guys, post-production LML breaking in here with a bit more on Tolkien's magic swords that I think you guys will like. Yes, in my zeal to summarize and keep things short, I think I cut out some of the best stuff. So check this out. The Dúnedain king who led the flight from Númenor was named Elendil, who used the sword Narsil, and that's the same one which was broken by Sauron, but was then used by Elendil's son Isildur to cut the One Ring from Sauron's hand. And then, of course, it was much later used by Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings. Now, Narsil means red and white flame, which, of course, has to make us think of Lightbringer, the flaming red sword of heroes, as well as the white sword, Dawn, which may, of course, be Lightbringer. The way Narsil was broken and reforged also reminds me of the last hero breaking his first sword against the cold of the others, but then later emerging with his sword of dragonsteel to defeat the others and win the war for the dawn. Finally, note that Narsil was forged in Numenor, but saved by the Dúnedain and then brought to Middle-earth, just as Dawn and or Lightbringer may have been forged in the Great Empire of the Dawn, but then brought to Westeros. Then, going a little further back into history, and by the way, this is all from the Silmarillion and Children of Hurin, we find the dark tale of the dark elf Eol, who first invents a new kind of unbreakable dark steel, which sounds almost exactly like Valyrian steel, and then later forges two twin black swords from a meteorite. There's Anglical, which means Iron of the Flaming Star, and Anguirel, which means Iron of the Eternal Star. And please have mercy on me, Tolkien experts, if I'm mispronouncing any of this. I don't speak Kenya, which is the elvish language of Tolkien. In any case, Anglical and Anguirel are absolutely the best swords in all of Tolkien lore, due to their unique meteoric origin and Eol's advanced smithing skill. But they're also cursed with Eol's malice. That's right. Anglical in particular is used tragically by Turin Turambar in the accidental slaying of his best friend Beleg. 
Turin later has Anglicel reforged by the dwarves and renames it Gurthang, and then whoops so much ass with it that Turin is actually nicknamed the Black Sword. And one thinks of Ned Stark's ancestor, Barth Blacksword Stark, who wielded ice. Now, so fearsome is the power of Gurthang that Turin is able to use it to slay the dragon Glaurung, and Gurthang actually runs with pale flame along its edges and even blazes up occasionally in battle. So clearly the magical twin black swords Anglicel and Anguirel are the inspiration for the twin black swords Stormbringer and Mornblade, especially when you consider that Stormbringer is similarly cursed and essentially slays Elric's love, Cimmeril, by acting with a will of its own, even while in Elric's hands, which is pretty similar to the tale of Turin and Beleg. And it's even more similar to Aeol the Dark Elf slaying his elven wife, Aradel, which he did while trying to slay his own son instead. He's, he's a dark elf, remember, he's not a very nice guy. And by the way, his son Meglin had stolen Anguirel from Eol. So all these black swords are cursed. And of course, don't forget that Valerian steel is almost certainly forged with human sacrifice and blood magic, just as Lightbringer was, which means those swords may well be cursed too. And it's also worth noting that Lightbringer was said to drink not only the blood of Nissa Nissa, but her soul as well even as Stormbringer drinks the souls of those it slays, such as the unfortunate Cimmeril. In other words, it seems pretty clear at this point that Elric's slaying of Cimmeril with Stormbringer, Turin's slaying of Beleg with Anglicel, and Eol's slaying of Aradel in an incident that involved Anguirel are some of the primary, if not the primary, influences on the legend of Azor Ahai slaying Nissa Nissa to forge Lightbringer. And if Lightbringer is a meteor sword, either Dawn itself or a black sword made from the Bloodstone Emperor's black meteorite, then we would have to see it as being very similar to the black meteor swords Anglicel and Anguirel. Once again, I hope you can see why I keep talking about the possibility of two magic swords being wrapped up in the Lightbringer mythology. And overall, I hope you can see that the legend of Azor Ahai, Nissa Nissa, and Lightbringer doesn't exactly come out of left field, but instead draws on a series of stories about cursed swords, black swords, meteor swords, and flaming swords from Tolkien and Moorcock, with Moorcock being influenced by Tolkien and George essentially keeping the tradition going and adding his own spin. And now back to the previously recorded script where I was talking about the Danes being similar to the Dúnedain. The Dúnedain are also the ones who built the Tower of Orthanc, whose black stone is described in almost exactly the same terms as the fused black stone that the Valerians are known for, which means that Orthanc may in fact be the inspiration for the fused black dragon stone. Honestly, it's a really cool and detailed correlation that deserves your full attention, so be sure to check out the video Great Empire of the Dawn Westeros for the full details. I just mentioned that Eldrick Shadow Chaser could be the Westerosi name for the last hero, who could be the first Dane. And that would imply that the Danes, again, come from the East, right? We can also turn to fantasy world genetics, such as they are, to find evidence that House Dane is actually a legacy of Azor High and other great Empire of the Dawn people coming to Westeros. Several members of House Dane in the main story very curiously show us silver hair and purple eye traits, despite having no Targaryen or Valerian blood. Ashara Dane has the purple eyes, and Edric and Geralt Darkstar Dane both have the eyes and the hair. 
We've seen in Danny's vision that the emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn had the signature Dragonlord hair, and at least some had the purple eyes. So now we have an explanation for these features appearing in the line of House Dane. What all this means is that the Danes essentially share a common ancestor with Valeria, which has actually been a fan theory long before we ever heard of the Great Empire of the Dawn in the World of Ice and Fire. It also means that the Sword Dawn is almost certainly a legacy of the Great Empire's magical sword-making ability, having either been made in the East and brought West, or perhaps made in the West with knowledge from the East. If Dawn is from the Great Empire of the Dawn, then that means it's probably either Lightbringer or perhaps Lightbringer's twin in a sort of two-sword Lightbringer scenario, such as we just discussed. So to sum up, on opposite sides of the world, we have very similar stories about the Long Night, both of which involve a magical meteorite and a hero with a shining or flaming sword who ends the Long Night. The stories have much and more to suggest that they are connected, which means that Martin is trying to tell us that the Long Night has something to do with falling stars. Perhaps they're just things to make swords with. Meteor swords are well established in Tolkien lore and other fantasy after all, but perhaps they're also the mysterious trigger mechanism for the Long Night. The question then becomes, where did these potential falling stars come from? And the answer to that is found, of course, in more Old Eastern legends. From whence did the meteors come? Well, the truth about this is actually hinted at in the Azor High myth itself. See if you can spot it. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why I cannot say. And Azor High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. Setting aside the somewhat hard-to-understand notion of a woman's scream and an act of blood magic somehow affecting a crack on the face of the moon, the Azor High myth seems to be recounting some sort of great lunar calamity. Better yet, or perhaps worse yet, this legend is directly associated with a long night. Now, supposedly the forging of Lightbringer takes place during the Long Night, as opposed to right before, but since we're dealing with mythology that's around 8,000 years old at least, I don't think this is really an issue. Bottom line, the myth talks about a celestial calamity having occurred in tandem with these key events of the Long Night. So it seems at least possible that this moon-cracking event was actually the Long Night-inducing calamity that we're hunting for, and that the myth simply rearranged the order of events a touch as time went on, or as the mythmakers carried out the conspiracies of the Starry Wisdom Cult, or something like that. If something bad did happened to the moon that was visible all the way from Earth, then it must have been very bad indeed. Perhaps bad enough to fling off some debris, which would have made it down to the Earth as impactor objects. If so, logic would dictate that the moon cracking happened first, with the moon meteors that fell to the planetos, then causing the long night with the smoke, ash, and soot that they would have thrown up into the air. And presto, the sun is hidden for years at a time. 
One of these falling objects would almost certainly have been the Bloodstone Emperor's evil Lovecraftian black meteorite, which you have to admit seems like exactly the sort of thing to cause the Long Night, especially with some sort of magical shadow still clinging to Ashai and the Shadowlands. And again, I believe that Ashai was the capital of the Great Empire of the Dawn, and thus the place where the Bloodstone Emperor would have reigned and practiced his dark arts. Remember, the Long Night isn't just an impact winter but a fantasy world version of an impact winter, which has magic built on top of natural phenomena. So a magic meteorite is exactly the right thing to cause a magical shadowing, such as we see a remnant of at a shy. Bonus clue, there's also a dragon-forged Valyrian steel sword named Nightfall, which has a moonstone in its pommel. Hmm because the long night was caused by moonstones that looked like dragons and swords when they filled the sky. This could also be another clue about a black sword having been made from the Bloodstone Emperor's black moon meteor. But hey, maybe this moon-cracking thing in the Azor High myth is just figurative or symbolic and not literal, right? Perhaps it's just a poetic way of communicating the horror and gravity of Nissanissa's sacrifice, and I'm just getting carried away. Well, the plot thickens, because Martin has left us another myth from a slightly different part of the world, which also speaks of the cracking of the moon. That makes it a lot more likely that there is actually some kind of real celestial event here that both of these legends are describing. We have two witnesses, in other words. This second moon-cracking myth is relayed to Daenerys from her handmaiden, Dorea, in Danny's third chapter of A Game of Thrones, which is long before we ever hear of Azor High and Nissanissa's moon-cracking scream. The legend itself comes from Karth, which, while not the Great Empire of the Dawn, is a very ancient city in its own right. A trader from Karth once told me that dragons come from the moon, blonde Daria said as she warmed a towel over the fire. Silvery wet hair tumbled across her eyes as Danny turned her head, curious. The moon? He told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi, the Lyseni girl said. Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack and the dragons will return. Figuring out that this description of dragons pouring out of a cracked moon must be a mythicized account of meteors falling to the earth after some sort of celestial calamity involving the moon was actually the first big realization that set off all of my theorizing, podcasting, essay writing, and so on. But pardon my nostalgia. The important thing to understand is that, as I mentioned at the top, people all around the world and all throughout history have been looking up at comets and falling meteors and comparing them to dragons. People do it in the story, too. Danny, unprompted, names the red comet the Dragon's Tail, right before she hatches her dragons. Old Nan, who, bless her heart, can't even see the comet, says it means dragons, boy. While Osha the Wildling says it means blood and fire, which are, of course, the words of House Targaryen. And for what it's worth, Maester Cresson, standing on Dragonstone, also compares the red of the comet to the red of fire and blood. And sunsets, by the way, sunsets like the Long Night. The similarities between comets and dragons are seemingly obvious to mythmakers and old nans everywhere. They both fly, breathe fire, land with a scream and a roar, and cause death and devastation everywhere they go. 
you have to admit, the idea of flappy, flappy fire lizards flying down to planetos from the moon is certainly a bit too far-fetched and nonsensical to fit in a song of ice and fire. But the idea that some epic ancient meteor shower was recorded as a swarm of fire-breathing dragons pretty much makes perfect sense. I mean, just think about it. We've already seen that the various long night myths are connected to both dragons and comets or meteors in multiple ways. We have specific accounts of magic meteors in both the east and the west. The presence of a cracking moon in two different legends, one from Karth and one from Ashai and Yiti, points the finger at the moon as the mother of these meteor dragons. And do you know who else is pointing the fiery finger of blame at the moon? You know who else seems to have heard these moon-cracking legends? Why, it's none other than Benero, the face-tattooed High Priest of R'hllor. That's who. Benero jabbed a finger at the moon, made a fist, spread his hands wide. When his voice rose in a crescendo, flames leapt from his fingers with a sudden whoosh and made the crowd gasp. The priest could trace fiery letters in the air as well, Valyrian glyphs. Tyrion recognized perhaps two in ten. One was doom, the other darkness. All right, so who's up for a game of charades? Honestly, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble and just shown you this quote right at the beginning, but what fun would that have been? This looks like a case of George's increasingly obvious foreshadowing system that his editor sometimes talks about, where George likes to drop more and more direct clues as the foreshadowed event draws closer, such as he did with the Red Wedding. For example, in the first two books, we're given the somewhat figurative language of the Azor High and Carthine moon-cracking legends. But now here in Book 5, George is just having the High Priest of Fire straight up pantomiming moon meteor theory to a huge crowd of frightened believers and to us readers. I do think Martin will drop us one more foreshadowing for some sort of meteor disaster, and that will come in the form of Bran seeing some sort of vision of the first long night. He'll probably see some sort of falling star or second sun in the sky, and he'll use language that's going to clue us in to the idea about meteors, and that'll be our last clue before the red comet comes back and causes the new long night. You heard it here first. And just to spell out the charade here, Benero points at the moon and then makes a fist, right? And that makes it clear that his fist represents the moon. Then Benero uses magic to create the illusion of his moon fist exploding in fire. He's obviously telling the Reloris and the other people of Volantis that something bad either did happen or will happen to the moon. Something involving fire, right? No wonder everyone is upset. People like their moons, I find. There's also an extra layer of symbolism in the fact that the soldiers of Valor, who are all around the scene here, are called the Fiery Fingers, and they hold fiery spears with metal flame points on them. There's always a thousand of them, and of course there was a thousand thousand dragons that came from the moon, so when Benero makes his moon fist explode, we should think of a thousand fiery fingers that are like fiery spears, and that definitely sounds like a moon meteor attack, right? Benero then punctuates his mythical astronomy lesson by tracing the fiery glyphs for doom and darkness. And yes, those are, those are the official Valerian glyphs that I just traced there. So again, I will say that the darkness and doom of the long night was triggered by the cracking or maybe even the exploding of the moon. Okay. 
Okay, so I hope you're with me. The moon is the mother of the meteor dragons. But who is the father, if you will? Or put another way, what caused the moon to crack? Did Azor Ahai just point at it and say, Shazam, or what? Well, the Azor Ahai myth says that it was Nissa Nissa's scream which broke the moon. Or you might say it was the entire blood magic ritual which did it. That's interesting because the Bloodstone Emperor story also says that it was the murder of an important woman that was part of what brought on the Long Night, right? It was specifically the usurpation and murder of the Amethyst Empress by the Bloodstone Emperor, which was known as the Blood Betrayal, that is remembered as having caused the sun to hide its face. And man, does that ever sound a lot like the story of Azor Ahai murdering Nissa Nissa, cracking the moon, and causing the long night, doesn't it? In fact, I believe it is the same story, which is why I named my second essay ever The Bloodstone Emperor Azor High, because I believe they were, in some sense, the same person. And the same goes for the Amethyst Empress Nissa Nissa. Now, I don't want to get too sidetracked here into these potential parallels, but I will briefly say that it certainly does make more sense to me that murdering women in blood magic rites is always evil, and that these two murders were actually the same wicked event. Otherwise, we're left with the confusing idea that the Long Night was caused by the murder of one woman, the Amethyst Empress, and then fixed with the murder of another woman, Nissa Nissa. And boy, wouldn't that be depressing. Talk about sending a bad message. When you consider Martin's commentary on human sacrifice and blood magic throughout the Stannis, Melisandre, Davos storyline, it seems obvious to me that the heroes in this story sacrifice their own desires and lay their own lives on the line, as opposed to trying to justify the magical murder of innocence. And furthermore, I would say that the notion of a hero murdering his wife to forge a heroic talisman is something of a trap and a trick designed to test the reader for moral relativism and extreme utilitarianism. Now, questions of morality aside, the parallels between the Azor High Nissa and the Bloodstone Emperor Amethyst Empress myths are compelling, but we still don't really have an intelligible cause for the cracking of the moon. I suppose somehow blood magic murder could be used to power acts of great destruction, such as in the Hammer of the Waters legends, but cracking the moon? Now, the Carthine dragons come from the moon story suggests the sun as the cause of the moon cracking, saying that the moon wandered too close to the sun and cracked from its incredible solar heat. The moon dragons then drank the fire of the sun, you see, and that's why dragons breathe flame. Now, what this is actually describing here seems to be a solar eclipse alignment with the moon in front of the sun, that's really the only way a moon would appear to be wandering too close to the sun. Now, obviously, a solar eclipse wouldn't actually harm the moon and crack off some moon meteors, since an eclipse only makes it look like the moon and sun are close to each other. They're really millions of miles away. So something is still missing here. Perhaps this moon disaster did occur in time with a solar eclipse. I mean, that certainly would be more epic and magical and all that. Modern pagans and fantasy world dark sorcerers alike do prefer to time their magic rituals to important cosmic alignments, so an eclipse could make sense. But still, if this second moon actually cracked enough to create moon meteor dragons, it really seems like something must have struck it, right? Some sort of big, large object striking the moon. But what? This, my friends, is where the red comet comes in. That's a red comet coming into the moon joke. And also a comet Starseed, com-
It could really only be a comet or meteor impact of tremendous size that would be able to do real damage to the moon. And even then, Martin would be pumping things up a bit with magic. Here's the thing, though. The entire idea of a red comet destroying the moon and plunging the world into darkness and evil is actually spelled out in a cartoon that George created about the long night way back in college, long before Song of Ice and Fire was ever written. That's right, I've worked very hard to obtain this footage. It's maybe my biggest find yet, so check it out. From out of space comes a runaway planet, hurtling between the Earth and the moon, unleashing cosmic destruction. Earth is reborn. A strange new world rises from the old. A world of savagery, super science, and sorcery. But one man bursts his bonds to fight for justice. He pits his strength, his courage, and his fabulous sun sword against the forces of evil. Hey, that wasn't George's film school project. That was the intro to Thundar the Barbarian, an old Saturday morning cartoon created by the former head writers of Hanna-Barbera, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears. Funny though, it sure looks a lot like our developing theory about the Red Comet, the Moon, and the Long Night. And look, there's Dawn, Thundar's sun sword. Lightbringer was the sun made steel. I don't mean to have too much sport here, but this is absolutely the kind of thing that inspires George. I mean, we've definitely caught him borrowing from comics and cartoons before. He loves this shit. Now, setting aside the question of, did Azor High sport a Thundar the Barbarian-style loincloth? The idea of a great comet piercing the heart of the moon and causing it to explode in dragon meteor childbirth is in fact spelled out by something from A Song of Ice and Fire, and not Saturday morning cartoons. It's the Azor High myth, our old friend, and what's going on here is sort of an as-above-so-below alchemical symbolic parallel. It works like this. Think of the cracked open moon as being analogous to Nissa Nissa, who dies when the moon is cracked, when the moon dies. The comet that pierces the moon would be playing the part of burning Lightbringer sword, stabbing Nissa Nissa, and if it was a red comet, like the one attached to the Azor High Reborn prophecy, then it really would look like a huge celestial version of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes, plunging into the heart of the moon. Indeed, Gendry names the red comet that we see in this story the Red Sword, saying that it looks red hot as if fresh from the forge. And that definitely has to have us thinking of Lightbringer, burning hot from the forge. Arya then follows up Gendry's comment by saying that the comet reminds her of her father's dragon-forged sword ice, but red with her father's blood. Besides the fact that Arya is comparing the comet to both dragons and magic swords here, it's also rather cheeky of Arya to compare the comet to ice, since comets are of course mostly made of ice, rock, and frozen dirt. Maester Lewin names the red comet as the sword that slays the season, which you gotta give that one a second glance, right? How does a comet slay the seasons? Well, by causing a long night, of course, which stops the cycle of the seasons dead in its tracks. And indeed, it's not only the people in A Song of Ice and Fire thinking about the comet as a great celestial sword. Just as people all throughout history have seen comets as flying dragons, they've also seen them as huge flaming swords. Again, hat tip to the Augsburg Book of Miracles. This is a fun parallel to the idea of a sword made from a meteorite. Instead, it's a flying meteor or comet that looks like a sword and which then falls to earth and gets made into a sword. The sword making might be done with dragon fire, and the comet or meteor looked like a dragon in the sky before it landed. 
and round and round it goes. The Circle of Star Swords. Hey friends, it's the notorious post-production LML, breaking in with yet some more magic sword talk, which apparently is my thing. So I just mentioned that Arya compares the red comet to Ned's ice, right? The blade's still red with Ned's blood. But of course, after Ned was executed with his own sword, it actually kind of stayed red, didn't it? Because the Lannisters melted it down and reforged it as two matching blood-red swords, Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper. This kind of makes me think that George wants us to continue to associate these two red swords that came from ice with the red comet and Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. And indeed, it's not just just the fact that they are red swords that are compared to the comet, the actual description of the partially dyed steel of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale is, in fact, highly evocative of the Long Night. Check this out. It says, Most Valyrian steel was a gray so dark it looked almost black, as was true here as well. But blended into the folds was a red as deep as the gray. The two colors lapped over one another without ever touching, like waves of night and blood upon some steely shore. So the swords are blood red, like the Bleeding Star, and when I read about their dragon-forged blades containing waves of blood, it kind of makes me think of waves of bleeding stars that look like swords and dragons. Then when I see the waves of night in the sword, I think of the clouds of ash, soot, and debris billowing out from the impact zones and choking out the sun. And here I will point out that the dark gray of Valyrian steel is nearly almost always called smoke dark or dark as smoke, which I would say is no accident, but rather a clue about where the smoke and darkness of the long night came from. It came from the dragon meteors that look like swords. And even the name Widow's Wail seems designed to make us think of Nissa Nissa's scream, her wail, which according to legend, broke the moon and thereby brought down the waves of night and the waves of bleeding stars. And actually, you can go down the line of Valerian steel sword names and see them all as comet and long night clues, which sounds like a great activity for the follow-up live stream. Yes, let's not add another two minutes to the script here. But if you'd like to have a little fun, feel free to go through all the names and... Think about how they could relate to the Long Night and the Comet, and leave a comment below. A comment about the Comet. Now, longtime patron John Isize also piped up after part three to ask me why I hadn't mentioned the two twin black and red dragon swords, Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper, as very obvious nods to Stormbringer and Mornblade from the Elric of Milnibene universe. To which I can only say, yeah, I, I should have, and... We can also mention the pair of Targaryen ancestral swords, Blackfire and Dark Sister, which also seem like a clear nod to Stormbringer and Mornblade, the twin dragon swords. And then finally, you may recall that Jamie dreams of he and Brienne wielding twin swords of pale fire, pale silvery blue fire to be exact, in a dream that takes place down in the Casterly Rock Caverns, where they face Kingsguard, who are described exactly as others, with armor of snow and mist streaming from their shoulders. Anytime we see heroes with flaming swords taking on symbolic others, we have to think about the last hero and the War for the Dawn and stuff like that. So then, of course, later, Jamie actually gives Brienne Oathkeeper, which, of course, again, makes us wonder if Oathkeeper or Widow's Whale or both will eventually become flaming swords, whether that makes them the Lightbringer or perhaps one of several flaming swords that will need to beat the others, and my money's on that option. Point being, there are a lot of twin swords in A Song of Ice and Fire, and they all seem tied into the symbolism and the mythology of Lightbringer, 
So it really would make sense if there were two Lightbringer swords, Dawn and some sort of black sword that was like a forerunner to Valyrian steel. After all, there must have been two comets. Think about it. We need one to break the moon in ancient day, and then we saw one flying overhead earlier in the main story. Comets do frequently fragment, especially when they're going around the sun, and perhaps this is what is meant by Azor Ahai's second forging attempt in the heart of a lion, which split and shattered the steel of Lightbringer. Along the same lines, I can't help but notice that it was the Lannisters, with their lion sigil and symbolism, who were the ones to split ice. So perhaps there is something to this idea of a split comet. Or perhaps there's an Oort cloud somewhere that just flings down red comets every so often, or when a Bloodstone Emperor calls one down. Now let's have another look at those well-worn lines of the ancient Ashai prophecy about Azor Ahai being reborn to wield Lightbringer and wake dragons from stone. Yikes. If Lightbringer is the comet, and the moon the stone, then the dragons woken from stone would be the moon meteor dragons. And this is all supposed to happen when the stars bleed, and when a darkness falls heavy on the world, mind you. Okay, so now think about this for a second. The Carthine moon-cracking myth says that the moon was like an egg when it cracked open to give birth to the meteor dragons. Danny's dragon eggs, in turn, were stone eggs before they hatched, and the moon meteor dragons themselves are literally flying stones that look like dragons. In other words, the term dragonstone can apply to the stone dragon's eggs, the stone moon which was like an egg, and the stone moon meteor dragons. Having set up all this cool parallel symbolism, George makes use of it to do all kinds of fun things that clue us into the idea that the moon cracking was caused by a comet, beginning with the island named Dragonstone. See if you can see what I'm talking about here in this scene on Dragonstone from A Clash of Kings, which comes to us from the POV of Maester Cresson. A night wind whispered through the great windows, sharp with the smell of the sea. Torches flickered along the walls of Dragonstone, and in the camp beyond, he could see hundreds of cook fires burning, as if a field of stars had fallen to the earth. Above, the comet blazed red and malevolent. Above, the comet blazed red and malevolent. And below, a field of stars fallen to the earth, burning like hundreds of fires amidst the night wind. It's almost like the comet is threatening us with a meteor shower or something. Dragonstone itself should function as a symbol of a stone moon pregnant with meteor dragon children. And it's decorated with torches. Think of the red comet being called Mormont's torch here if you like, or just compare the torches to the cook fires below that look like a field of fallen stars. Of course, the keep of Dragonstone is made entirely of fused black stone and is decorated with hundreds or even thousands of stone dragons, hence the name Dragonstone. So it's literally a giant stone object full of stone dragons. There is some talk of these stone parapet dragons waking, but when you consider that the island is actually itself volcanic, we can see the implication that this dragonstone could one day explode, flinging fiery stone dragons and flaming hunks of rock all over the place. Above, the comet blazed red and malevolent. Honorable mention for dragonstone red comet scenes goes to this quote, which is actually the opening of A Clash of Kings. The comet's tail spread across the dawn, a red slash that bled above the crags of Dragonstone like a wound in the pink and purple sky. 
Again, with the menacing vibe here, the comet is wounding the sky and bleeding out all over Dragonstone. I especially like how the comet's tail spread across the dawn. It almost sounds like a big cosmic sword fight between a red sword and dawn, right? Or perhaps the red comet spreading across the dawn is meant to imply that dawn is Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. If so, dawn would need some red fire, but that's certainly not hard to imagine. All right, very, very quick post-production LML note here. So the comet hanging up in the dawn sky, I failed to point out, of course, places it in the approximate position of Venus as the morning star, heralding the sunrise, bringing the dawn, bringing the light, the sun of the morning, all that stuff. And then as a counterpoint, we see the red comet do an even star routine on the night that Danny's dragons hatch. There it says, Danny looked and saw it low in the east. The first star was a comet burning red. Now, although Venus as the even star appears in the west and not the east, it is always the first star to appear, and it's very noticeable as the first star. It's very bright. So George would appear to be directly calling out the red comet as playing the symbolic role of Venus. In the Crescent scene, it's acting as the Lightbringer, the Herald of the Dawn. And then in the Danny scene, it's acting as the Nightbringer, Herald of the Evenfall. The glory rolls on, of course, with Danny's actual dragon's angst. In that very same chapter of A Game of Thrones, in which Danny hears about the Carthian legend of dragons coming from a cracked moon, Danny catches sight of the dragon's angst as she returns to her tent. As she let the door flap close behind her, Danny saw a finger of dusty red light reach out to touch her dragon's eggs across the tent. For an instant, a thousand droplets of scarlet flame swam before her eyes. She blinked and they were gone. Stone, she told herself. They are only stone, even Illyrio said so. The dragons are all dead. A finger of red light reaches out to touch the dragon's eggs. Kind of like the red comet reaching out to touch the moon. And then, to represent the birth of a thousand thousand meteor dragons, we see a thousand droplets of scarlet flame appear momentarily. It's not quite as obvious as the Dragonstone quote with a field of fallen stars, but it looks like the same symbolism, especially since it's coming right next to the Carthine moon dragons myth itself. It also looks an awful lot like Bonero pointing his fiery finger at the moon, doesn't it? So the island of Dragonstone looks like a moon waiting to give birth to dragony meteor children, and the stone dragon's eggs do too. The big payoff comes, of course, when Danny actually wakes the dragons from stone on the night the Red Comet first appears. Drogon's hatching in particular bears mention here since his midnight black egg, midnight black, cracks open with a sound as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. Yikes! That's Drogon the Winged Shadow, right? Double yikes. What's going on here? Is the world like breaking and falling under a shadow or something? Well, yes, because in A Dance with Dragons, we read of Drogon that the second time he passed before the sun, his black wings spread and the world darkened. The world is darkening. The world is breaking. Gosh, this... This doesn't sound good, does it? Drogon is also mimicking a solar eclipse here, just like the Carthian myth suggests, as Drogon is passing before the sun, just like an eclipsing moon. The scene of the hatching of the stone dragon's eggs is also where we find choice lines like these. She told herself that there were powers stronger than hatred and spells older and truer than any magi had learned in a shy. 
The night was black and moonless, but overhead a million stars burned bright. She took that for an omen. All right, you got me. Technically, this is the night before Danny wakes the dragons, when Danny tries and fails to revive Drogo from his vegetative state and instead has to euthanize him. But this is still working as a setup for the dragon hatching, which, of course, goes down in Drogo's funeral pyre. You can kind of see what's going on here, I hope. It's a black, moonless night. Gosh, what happened to the moon? I hope nothing bad. And now we have a million stars burning brightly in the sky. That's what happens when you remove the moon from the sky. You get a thousand thousand burning stars rapping at your chamber door. And yes, the crows and ravens are used as black meteor symbols, in case you're wondering. All right, guys, post-production, LML back one more time. Uh, this quote that we just read is very, very similar to something Salador San says to Davos in the same chapter that he tells Davos the Azor High legend. Salah says, When you speak to King Stannis, mention, if you would, that he will owe me another 30,000 dragons come the black of the moon. The expression, the black of the moon, is of course a reference to a new moon when the sky appears black and moonless, just like in the Danny Drogon quote that we just read, where it says the night was black and moonless. Here in this quote, Sala is saying that when the moon disappears, King Stannis, who is an Azor High parallel character with a burning sword, will owe thousands of dragons. While in the Drogo quote, we find that when the moon disappears, a million stars burn bright. So as you can see, all of these scenes which are telling us about Azor High are also spelling out the destruction of the moon, the appearance of bleeding stars, and a red comet as the thing to blame. The Nightbringer, if you will, to use a popular expression that all the kids are saying on the internet these days. Now, it's actually very important and intentional that these lines come as Drogo is being killed, and also that the dragons hatch in Drogo's pyre. Cal Drogo, whom Danny calls her sun and stars, represents the sun, as, again, kings often do with their golden crowns. And Drogo's death, therefore, represents the fall of the long night, the death of the sun. Hence the black night and meteor shower language at Drogo's death that we just read. And hence his pyre being chosen as the backdrop for the hatching of the dragon's eggs, which represent the cracking of the moon egg. Drogo, the living sun king, dies, and in his place rises Drogon, the winged shadow. This is essentially the story of the long night, and it's a mirror to the eastern myth of the maiden made of light turning her back on the world when the Lion of Night comes out to punish the world. Drogo's pyre is also telling the story of the Long Night by billowing up great clouds of smoke into the sky, a depiction of the sun-blocking ash and soot spreading out from the moon meteor impact craters. The same symbolism is depicted earlier in A Game of Thrones when Danny undoes Drogo's braids. There it says, his hair spread out behind him like a river of darkness. When a river of darkness spreads out from the face of the sun, the long night is at hand. Now, just as Danny calls Drogo her sun and stars, Cal Drogo calls Danny, say it with me, moon of my life. This, of course, mimics the perceived relationship of the sun and moon according to Dothraki beliefs, which are that, and let me just get the quote right, moon is God, woman wife of sun, it is known. It is known. So Drogo is the Sun King, Danny is the Silver Moon Queen, and also the Mother of Dragons, 
just as the moon is the mother of dragons. Aha, there it was, right? Then when Danny the Moon Queen literally wanders too close to the fire of her son king's pyre, the dragon stones crack and the dragons are born. In other words, Danny is specifically reenacting the Carthine moon dragons myth. And she's doing it at the same time that she fulfills the Azor High Reborn prophecy beneath a bleeding star. What does all this mean? Well, it means I know what the hell I'm talking about with all this moon meteor shit. That's what it means. No, seriously though, Martin choosing to juxtapose a symbolic reenactment of the Carthine moon cracking myth with Danny becoming Azor High Reborn means that we're right to connect the two legends about the moon cracking and also that the waking of dragons from stone is meant to parallel the idea of dragons coming from a cracked moon. I think that's about as simply as I can say it. So Drogo and Danny are like the sun and the moon, wandering too close to one another, kissing and making moon dragons that breathe fire like the sun. But what about Azor High and Nissa Nissa? I already suggested that Nissa Nissa was like the moon, and that Lightbringer was like a big red comet sword crashing into the moon, so is Azor High the sun? Well, he is called the warrior of fire now, isn't he? The crown of metal flames worn by Azor High impressionist Stannis Baratheon attests to this. It's an even more obvious solar crown symbol than the normal golden crowns that kings and queens wear. It's a very obvious way to say, this guy is a sun king. Melisandre also compares Azor High's rebirth into the world to the sun returning to the world. So overall, I think we're on pretty solid ground, identifying Azor High as the sun in our great cosmic roleplay. So what do we have now up in the sky? We can understand the idea of a comet striking the moon, but how would the sun be thought of as wielding the comet like a sword or stabbing the moon with the comet, anything like that? Well, the answer can be found in the eclipse alignment, part of the Carthine moon dragons myth. Recall that I said the only way the moon can look like it's wandering too close to the sun is if it's in front of it in a solar eclipse position. If the comet were to strike the moon at this time, then its little comet tail would be kind of sticking up into the air, a little bit like a sword held in the hands of the sun, which would be sort of standing behind the moon. I think that's the answer, and that's why I designed my first logo to look like a picture of what I was just describing, way back in AD 2015. Pretty much everyone has noticed that a solar eclipse already looks kind of like a great eye in the sky, though it's something of a creepy, burning black eye, right? Well, a comet striking the moon at such a moment could also be seen in mythical terms as a great celestial eye being put out with a sword. If you're thinking of Odin here, that's good. George is indeed riffing off of Odin's sacrifice of his divine eye in Mimir's well. We definitely don't have time to side branch into all the wonderful symbolic eye-stabbing scenes scattered throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. But just to give you a quick taste, think of the dragon battle over the lake called the God's Eye, where dragons, dragon riders, and dragon swords all crash into, or you might say, stab the God's Eye Lake. Damon even leaps from his dragon to drive a dragon sword into Aemond One-Eye's star sapphire eye before they crash into the God's Eye Lake. So there's like many layers of dragon sword eye-stabbing symbolism going on at that party. This is also the reason why we catch Beric, please don't call me Azor High Reborn Dondarian, running on fiery lore power and wielding a flaming sword with one eye missing 
and also why John has a big red scar over one eye, and also why Euron Crow's eye is doing all sorts of weird blood eye symbolism, and also why Waymar's eye is pierced with a sword shard in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. You get the idea. The point is that the eclipse alignment is important. It's what matches the moon wandering too close to the sun language, and it's what creates the god's eye symbolism. It's role played out at Danny's dragon hatching scene when she wanders into the pyre of her sun king, and at the end of the day, it's supposed to symbolize the union of a man and woman that leads to children. That's right, sex symbolism. Remember, the sun kisses the moon before the dragon children are born. We can actually think of the comet as the star seed of the sun, or, and just to cover the kids' ears for a minute here, the giant red penis of the sun. Sorry to get all Freudian on you there, but this is part of the purpose of Barbary Dustin's famous tirade about Brandon Stark's bloody sword and how he liked to give it to all the maidens. It seems very likely that Azor High and Nissa Nissa had children together before Nissa Nissa's untimely death. And honestly, you can see the entire Lightbringer forging myth as the story of a man who impregnates a woman and a woman who then dies in childbirth, producing a child who will save the world from the long night. And say, didn't John and Danny's mothers both die in childbirth? Tyrion's too, for that matter. I'm certainly not the first to suggest that John and Danny themselves are Lightbringer in some sense. And here I want to give a huge shout out to Schmendrick from the Westeros.org forums, whose absolutely foundational essay, R plus L equals Lightbringer, basically inspired me to start writing essays and very heavily influenced my style of analysis. You'll definitely want to read that one. So check out the link for it in the description of the video below. By the way, Schmendrick wrote this great essay, left it on westeros.org forums, and then vanished without a trace. <laughs> and so, Schmendrick, if you're out there, buddy, get a hold of me. Come on the live stream. Perhaps he was abducted by the faceless men for getting a little too close to the truth. So here we are, come to the end of the video at last. But I've got one final point to make, so click like and subscribe if you haven't already. A big question that some of you might be getting ready to type into the comments is, didn't the Red Comet already come and go and not cause a long night? Well, the short answer is that we can't have any moon crackings or meteor dragon landings until the story is ready for the fall of the long night, which should come at the end of the winds of winter, I'm thinking. Expect the comet to return sometime in that book, and then expect the new long night to be triggered by some sort of new moon apocalypse. Recall that the Carthian legend actually ends with a prophecy. It says, one day the other moon will kiss the sun too and crack, and the dragons will return. That's quite a bit more foreboding now than it first appeared, isn't it? In any case, when the moon meteor dragons return, turn out the lights. Remember that I told you it would happen. My thinking is that if it was meteors that caused the first long night, then it will surely be meteors that cause the new one. Because why invent a different way to cause a long night when you already thought of one and then went to great lengths to hide it in the folklore of the story? Also, also, Azor High seems like kind of a dick, right? And not in the Lightbringer is a celestial dick sense. I mean, the guy killed his wife and broke the moon. And based on what we've seen today, he caused the long night by doing so. I, for one, have always had trouble seeing a wife stabber, if you will, as a hero. So once I figured out that the moon breaking 
caused the long night. It sort of all snapped into place for me. That's why it's easy for me to think of the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor High as the same guy. Now, of course, Azor High is actually somehow remembered as the hero, but of course, history and myth-making are like that sometimes obscuring who the heroes and villains really were. Also, there's a few good potential stories to make Azor High both the Long Night-inducing villain and the Long Night-ending hero. I mean, perhaps he has the world's best redemption arc, right? Or perhaps multiple people who wielded flaming swords at that time got remembered as the same guy. And here I'd point out again that Elric and Irkun from the Elric of Melnibene stories were cousins and rivals who both had dragon swords. Perhaps Azor High was a title, or perhaps it was a house name, and it was Azor High's son who threw him down and played the hero redeeming the family name of House Ahai, or something like that. Any of these could work, and of course, feel free to speculate in the comments. I hope I've given you something fresh to chew on if you've never heard my Moon Meteor Theory before. And thanks to all of you who've been watching what I do for years now. If you want to support the channel and see more videos like this, then please consider joining our Patreon campaign. Or if you prefer, you can send a one-time donation in at paypal.com slash mythicalastronomy. And you actually don't even need a PayPal account to do that. Thanks for watching, everyone, and if you're new to the channel, again, enjoy the rest of the videos on the channel. There's quite a back catalog to work through. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.